Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Today, on this boiling hot, sunny uh, spring bank holiday, I've got the pleasure of doing five great British horror films with uh, author Jack Sargent. Hello, Jack. Hey. Now, as a bit of context for the dear listener, um, and uh, I'll explain how, how, how sort of you've ended up on the show, I suppose. Um, in, in the 90s, for me, there were three books that I read that really sort of opened my eyes, changed my view, whatever you, however you want to describe it. There was Caroline Glover's, Caroline Glover's Men, Women in Chainsaws. There was uh, Karekis and Slater's from Head Press, Killing for Culture. And there was your book, Death Tripping, um, that uh, really opened my eyes to sort of art and film and thinking about film beyond sort of the thrill of being a young guy who liked to see just blood and guts. If that, if that begins to make any sense. And it I was, does. I was, I was, thank you so much for putting me in such great company as well. <laughs> but that, but it's, it's like, for me, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm of a vintage that, 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 um, that can predate the internet. And as I was saying to you before we started recording, it's sort of like, it's that window into a world that the internet so easily gives you now um, that, that these books were literally inf- with the information you could get your hands on and, and suddenly you were like, Wow, look at that. Um Yeah, I mean it was an amazing era, you know, because you had all that all those kind of great publishing companies doing those kind of books. You had uh like people who just I guess coming out of a zine culture but started writing books, so you had you know, killing for culture, things like that. Uh just these books coming out where you I remember going to Compendium in London and you just come come out of a pile of books and each one with like education and a different subculture. Yeah, I mean subcultures that's a good way. That's that's the thing. It's sort of as you as as you know, I, I guess I was trying to hook myself onto whatever it was and whatever it was I found found interesting and music was I guess the easiest way to to ride into any of this. But then realizing there was all these other things and like and like again, like I was saying to you before we started recording, you know, the the journey from my music fandom to your book in particular would be Sonic Youth, Lydia Lunch crossover, then Lydia Lunch being part of the scene that, that's in Death Trip. And if I, I mean, I haven't read the book for a while, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember now. Sonic Youth get names yet, don't you, in, the, in Death Trip? In oh, yeah, no, Son, Sonic Youth get in there, Lydia's in there. But, but I mean, like, for me, when I was younger, so I was in the early 80s, mm-hmm. 
uh, it was going out and buying the research books, like the research industrial culture handbook, oh, course, and then yeah. you know the research J.G. Ballard, the research William Bowes and Thorbin Grissel, uh, and then the research incredibly strange films book, and that incredibly strange films book. I mean, that was probably the first time I'd really heard about people like. I would have been 16 or 18 or something when that came out. And that's mm. probably the first time I've really heard of some of those filmmakers, you know, Ray Dennis Steckler or whatever, you know. Mm. So that was like, wow, you know, this, this whole world opening up. Uh, so, yeah, that whole period of time was just so good. And then you had things like uh, the Amok uh, Dispatch, you know, of extreme and weird information in print. And just these incredible books that you would just, they were all, uh, you know, a glimpse into a new world. And that was just a wonderful experience as, like, you know, my late teens, just to have this world opening up. Well, you'd be glad to late learn. Late teens and early 20s. I was going to say, you'd be glad to learn that in 2019, and this is kind of lovely in the run-up, seeing this in my Facebook feed in the run-up to speaking to you, is that a friend of mine, Sheila Rowan-Legg, who she's writing an essay for, I can't pronounce the word, I'm going to try that, Bildsterung's DVD release of Friendly Beast, and she's put, so nice to be back in research, and there's a stack of books, and third from the top is Death Tripping by Jack Sargent. So you're, uh, you're, oh, now, cool. you're now feeding the canon, as well as being part of the canon. <laughs> that's, 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 that's an honour. I, I feel really honoured that people feel that. I mean, I, it's, it's great. Well, look, we're going um, to do five great bits horror films with you. I'll, uh, before I go into that, is there anything... What, what, what 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 work have you got going on at the moment that people should know about? Any more re what recent books or, or books that you you think people would be interested in that you've written that we, we can flag up and I'll put a link in the show notes after. Oh, well, my last book was Flesh and Excess on Underground Film, and that's definitely uh, definitely worth a read. Uh, that was published by actually by a mock books, hmm. uh, and that should be pretty available in bookstores in England. Or audible online from the usual usual online. What's, what's that book about? A uh, sort of. Oh man, <laughs> that covers everything. So it's got a lot in there about film festivals, uh, underground film festivals, uh, the kind of rebirth of underground film in the eighties, and then the way my particular interest in that into kind of films dealing with the body and dealing with flesh, mm. and then in particular looking at uh, a handful of films I just think are really important. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's you know. It's, I guess, an articulation that conti continued fascination with those things, you know. Excellent. And the other book I had out recently was a book called Against Control, which is a series of uh, collected essays on the Borosian universe I wrote over years, collected together by 8mm Publishing out hmm. of Sweden. And what, for, yeah. what, what for you is, a, is an ongoing fascination with the sort of Burroughs universe or the Burroughs writing? Uh, I, you know, there's some things, uh, actually, in the start of Flesh and Excess, I say that, you know, I feel like I'm a dog returning to my own vomit. I think that's the, the phrase I use. Uh, I, I just have this fascination with these certain things. And uh, I've got, you know, I'm working on other books now, but I don't want to say what they are. Uh, but, I mean, I've got these kind of ongoing fascinations. But they kind of, they're the same but different each time, you mm. know. So, because of, I think probably because of coming up in that underground world it's something that like it's the backbone of what my interest is so even though things change and metamorphosize and so on i think that you always have that kind of yeah where you started from and you build upon it i guess you know i mean I, that said like 
I could probably, you know, write a reasonably entertaining essay on, the, you know, all kinds of forms of cinema. Mm. Uh, but my my main interest is still that kind of alternative underground uh, cult, independent film, independent documentary, and so on. So it's still that's still the kind of backbone of where I am. But I mean, I work as a one of my jobs is working as a programmer for a film festival. Okay. So I'm simultaneously I'm immersed in you know looking at independent film and uh, documentary and so all kinds of cinema. Uh, what film festival is it? I just uh, so it's it's called the Revelation Perth International Film Festival and that's okay. in Perth in Western Australia. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I just I, I sit there and choose the films or help choose the films for them. Uh, which is great. I get to watch a lot of movies. <laughs> and I do watch a lot of films all the time. Uh, yeah, I feel very lucky. You know, I'm able to just watch films. Right. Um, in thinking about um, what, what, you, what that, world, that world of film you're talking about, I've always been, I've always been fascinated by the, the, the notion that this underground cinema world that, that you like to explore manages to straddle sort of being like travel art house but also exploitation or grindhouse and i've always i've always wondered how it manages to do that you know and, and the two can overlap quite easily whereas art house cinema is 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 not always allowed as a as a kind of subgenre to be too exploitative or else it loses its art house edge but there's a, there's a strand of underground cinema that manages to to be able to live with both isn't it yeah i mean i think there is there's an interesting actually a book that i've got an essay in called From the Grindhouse to the Art House, which actually explores a lot of those films. Okay. Uh, and that's that's kind of interesting because I think that art house cinema, you do get these art house filmmakers who do embrace, or filmmakers who come from a tradition I think you would call art house, that do embrace the kind of aesthetics of, I guess, on some form of, extreme cinema or exploitation cinema. I mean, even people like Lars von Trier with, you know, the house that Jack built, hmm. uh, or, oh God, uh, Don Monpu, the French film about the woman who is eating her skin. Right. Uh, God, there's, I can't think of other ones, but yeah, uh, yeah, but all these European filmmakers who like, you know, they're now kind of collected together as European extreme or whatever. Hmm. But I think they, ha- they they kind of meld those traditions together in a way. That kind of horror film aspect, kind of gore aspect, cult aspect, with the kind of philosophical bent. But then you look back at those kind of gore movies and grindhouse movies, and you can see that it's always been a kind of philosophical, intellectual, aesthetically developed edge to those films. And if you look at something like you know the research, incredibly strange films, you can see that. These filmmakers, you know, in a lot of cases, they're making very sophisticated works that, because they were screened in grindhouse cinemas and drive-ins, they were kind of ignored in a lot of ways. But, mm. you know, I think those cult films and exploitation films always have, you know, a depth to them that maybe people people don't consider, you know. And I, I think that, I guess, we talked earlier about writing and so on. And I think that those writers I like, and those writers about film, I guess of my generation, hmm. you know, we a lot of people there took, you know, intellectual ideas and then looked at, you know, what was you know generally kind of derided forms of cinema previously. Uh, you mentioned, you know, men, women, and chainsaws. Uh, 
And I guess that's that's the kind of classic example. Those films were like, you know, for many people, I think they were considered beneath the pale. And, you know, after that book came out, and I think they're part of the canon, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I, never, I never thought I'd ever see a, the day where someone wrote seriously about I Spit on Your Grave. Yeah, and, you know, uh, it's worth remembering that half of the films that, you know, the video nasties in England or whatever, you know, half of those are now on, you know, they're seen as classic cinema. Mm. You know, they're seen as important films. And you look at some of the aesthetics of them, uh, what they did with uh, formal aspects of filming, aspects of storytelling, things like that, modes of identification. They're much more sophisticated in a lot of cases, and I think that people gave them credit for. So the art house, grindhouse thing, I think there's always been an art grindhouse relationship. And I think that goes back to, you know, fine art as well. I mean, you look at uh, the surrealists and their interest in cinema or the the surrealists' interest in Marquis de Sade or whatever. And there's always been this kind of high art, low art kind of combination. You know, and I think that I think that these films are part of that tradition in a way, you know. Mm. And it's also, it's that, I think sometimes it's, it's always easy, isn't it, to have a visceral response to something that is visceral, but then there's there's a there's absorbing that and then trying to understand why, which is much harder to do for 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 in a lot of cases because the shock value can just override everything, can't it? Yeah, well, in a way, that's one of the things that I talk about in that last book I did, uh, Flesh in Excess, is mm. is the visceral response to to certain kinds of cinema. And certain kinds of uh, notions about the body and representations of the body and bodily functions or whatever, and how how the visceral effect actually is part of the response. Mm. Uh, and I think that that I think that the idea of experiencing film having an effect on your body is is interesting. I mean, I guess you look at. I mean, I guess the most obvious examples would be horror films make you jump. Yeah. You know, you can't cogitate a jump. You jump, and even if it's a really crappy horror film. And you know the jump's coming, you still jump. Mm-hmm. And there's, that's, there's a losing ability to kind of cogitate there, which I think is really interesting. And I guess, you know, it's kind of, you know, pornography is the same. If you watch a porno film and, you know, and you get aroused or whatever, uh, that's, again, it's not like you're sitting there wanting to get aroused. It just happens, you know? So I think that these, these kind of low, you know, in inverted commas, low genres uh, actually they have something that other film genres don't have in the same way, which is that kind of visceral, physical response, you know, which I find really fascinating. There's a, a, this is going to sound like a crass comparison, but I'm even sort of drawing on. There's a writer, Cargill, who did uh, Sinister and uh, Doctor Strange. Uh, he, scre- he was the screenwriter, those two things. He has a podcast called Write Along. And on it, he, he, he often talks about the fact that there are two spectrums of, on the film on, on the film world, and he said, the more expensive the film is, the more everyone's got to understand it, so therefore everything's got to be plain and simple. And he said, the cheaper your film gets, the less you have to explain what you're doing and let the audience do the work. And I think that's where a lot of this film is, which is why it's exciting, it's infuriating, it gets the brain going, because the answers aren't all there. You know, you've got to do some work, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, that's, to me, that's always a failure of something when they explain what's happening. Characters, <laughs> the films they're explaining, yeah. Uh, it's much more much more fascinating to me when things are just happening. Uh, I just... <laughs> here I am talking about independent film. 
I was just watching Netflix. I was just watching this new horror thing on there called Black Summer. I think it's called Black Summer. Mm-hmm. It's a zombie thing. Right. And it's really fascinating uh, because it's it just drops you in it. There's no kind of sense of we're going to develop a relationship with a character. It's all like as chapters. Oh, right. Each episode of the series of short chapters. And I think it I think it went on Netflix maybe last weekend. Mm-hmm. And I was just really interested in the way that this, and it, uh, yeah, this kind of, told a, a, I guess, a familiar kind of zombie kind of narrative in a very, you know, comparatively different way uh, from what we're used to. And I just thought that was really interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm, I was, I was moderately impressed. <laughs> good, good, to know, good to know you can be moderately impressed. Uh, right then, let's get on to five great British horror films, as that's what we're here for. Uh, quick, quick recap yes. of the rules for the, for those that might be joining this series for the first time. It's five great British horror films, uh, chosen by Jack, and we will talk about each film for five minutes. This isn't about trying to define what is the great British horror film, but more about finding out five interesting films that are come from a kind of a British perspective or a British film production um, world. Um, and when Edgar Broughton Band sings out Demons Out, we will end. I'm not going to be Magnus Magnuson on you and say we've started or finished, so, you know, by all means, finish your sentence off, Jack. Um, but then that means that we get to spend at least five minutes each on the films. I'll do them in reverse their order, starting with the oldest, ending on the newest. And um, and that's about it. So are you ready to go, Jack? Uh, yes, I am. Good man, good man. Well, let's start with uh, Ken Russell's The Devils. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was thinking I should try and rewatch these films, and of course it, you can't rewatch The Devils because I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, <laughs> the Devils, I, I, I saw it on. I think I'm pretty sure I saw this on BBC Two. Right. Uh, back in the eighties, when I was in my mid-teens, mm-hmm. uh, and. I knew Ken Russell, obviously, from Altered States uh, and Gothic. Uh, so maybe that was later than the mid-80s. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, I was I knew who Ken Russell was. Uh, and watching The Devils, it was just like this... It was it seemed to come out totally out of left field for me. And, you know, we've been talking about art and horror and art and genre and so on. And I think this is very much, a, you know, a film that plays with those that kind of uh, art film slash uh, genre film. Mm. Uh, and goes back and forth between the two. Uh, obviously, I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Ken Russell, and he's one of those British filmmakers who who seems totally unique. You know, uh, it's, it's, even now it's kind of hard to get an, an angle on, on on him and his work. <laughs> you know, you read the book about there's a book out about the the devils, and you know that gives you some insight, but just there's something about this film that just always stuck with me. And obviously the images are very potent images and the art design is incredible and so on. And obviously the art design was by uh, Derek Jarman. Uh, so you've got this kind of whole kind of British avant-garde thing happening in there as well. Mm. I just remember watching that film on BBC Two at some point in the 80s and just thinking, this is a really strange film. <laughs> I'm really in- And I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm really getting to grips with that the whole, the whole thing, the story, the design, the acting, uh, and it just—it's one of those films, I guess, that opens up a a new world for you. You know, hmm. in what sense? I think, I think that you know, prob- probably 
being a teenager in the in the eighties. Uh, I was very involved in like watching art house cinema. I'd be going and seeing a Razorhead and films like that as late nights, and I'd be watching, you know, like every other you know teenager going and you know hunting down, uh, you know, zombie films and so on. And something like The Devils comes along, and it's totally not what you what you're familiar with, but it kind of has touchstones that you you can recognise. And just watching it and just thinking, you know, wow, this is something new. And then finding out, you know, it's a British filmmaker finding out that, you know, this film is comes from this, you know, this book, this Huxley book, and also uh, Whitting's play, uh, and how this film was. So yeah, it had this kind of pedigree as well, and you know, going looking at obviously Huxley and so on. So I think it's one of those kind of gateway things, you know, which I always find fascinating. Those kind of gateway moments which open up things for you. I was going to say, and it's, it's you know, with the, with the benefit of hindsight, we can now judge Ken Russell as an exciting filmmaker uh, and provocateur much, with, 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 with less emphasis on the pejorative and more emphasis on the there's nobody quite like him now because his kind of... Because his stuff was shown at the ABC in Kingston or whatever it was. It wasn't like this was just playing in obscure parts of the world like you know going to see a razorhead in the 80s wouldn't have been wouldn't have been somewhere you could see everywhere would it i mean the thing is there's a whole different cinema experience in the 80s so in the 80s you know i think every town most towns would have an art house cinema yeah that would show late night double bills and it would be like you know the blues brothers and animal house the thing and the salt on prison 13 mm. uh a razorhead and but by the end of the 80s, Blue Velvet. Uh, you know, so you'd have these kind of classic double bills. And I think you'd see Ken Russell films play, you know, not the late night double bills, but when they were released, they play in those cinemas. I remember going to see films like Gothic in that context. Mm. Uh, and Altered States. But I'm trying to work out if I saw Lair of the White Worm in that context as well. Mm. Uh, but just that, you know, that kind of art house circuit. Uh, which, yeah, you're right, crossed over into things like the ABC chain and so on. Uh, but this, these, these were like staples, I think, these films, you know. Uh, but The Devils, as I say, it was, it was something I saw on TV. Uh, mm. It was that, that great period of TV where like, TV would just show really odd films. Uh, I rem- and I remember like getting quite a good education from like, the Colts TV strand on... BBC. Uh, I think Alex Cox drove it. Memories. Yeah, did, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, no, I, I think I think Alex Cox has been responsible for quite a lot of the guests I've had on the podcast. Into his movie, Movie Drone, was his uh, his sort of mid to late eighties sort of window into a world well, of that, cinema. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is that you've read about these films, but seeing them wasn't always that easy. Mm. Uh, and yeah, when the BBC, you know, BBC Two started showing those, that was just a great moment. Indeed. Well, look, from uh, from the devils to something quite absurd, uh, the Portmanteau Theatre of Blood. Do you want to... Well, I guess it, is it a portmanteau? I don't know. Uh, no, it's, 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 it's all one story. So, it is, you know. I suppose. But I suppose it's the, 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 the various outfits. Make, always makes me feel like it's a, it's a chapter. Yeah, I mean, there's some... You know, again, this is something I first saw on TV. Uh, I think this would have been the early 80s yeah i just remember watching it and thinking what the hell am i watching <laughs> you know and then like <laughs> you know it's like this whole 
the, the the wonderful performances in it. Obviously, it's uh, Vincent Price and Diana Rigg, and just their performances are just so great. Uh, and then you have the uh, the story where they're killing people. He's killing critics. He's a theatre director. He's got bad reviews, and he's killing the critics who gave him bad reviews. But he's killing them in the manner that Shakespeare killed people. And it's just there's something about this film that's just it's so gloriously absurd and so over the top and so funny. Uh, but also, it's got the tone is really nice because it's it's funny, but it doesn't play it for laughs. It plays it straight, which I really like. It's like, you know, I, I remember watching this and just thinking, you know, oh, this is good. Cause they, they, it's like there's no appreciation going on for what they were doing, you know. Hmm. Uh, and I, I really like I really like that tone to it. Uh, and I think that you, know, you can just see that everyone's having a good time. You know, Vincent, Vincent Price was just you know, fantastic in it. Uh, and then I remember some of the you know, some of the killings of the critics are just so so fantastically absurd. Like there's one critic that memory serves they feed him his dogs. You know, yes, and he chokes to death eating his own dogs. And I just remember watching that and thinking, this is this is great because you know when you're yeah, kind of young and you're watching horror films, you want like, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula, uh, you know, Hammer horror films. And this one, yeah, you, you could see it was somehow in that tradition, but also was totally removed from that tradition. Uh, and it was just something that really fascinated me. Uh, it was one of those films that, again, it was like a world I hadn't necessarily considered. Uh, and after you watched it, you were just like, this is, this is great. Yeah, you'd be uh, you know, telling people, you know, the next day, did you see that film? Talking about it, and it was one of those, one of those things. And of course, everyone saw it because, again, I, I, don't, I don't think it was on BBC Two, but they used to have like, you know, horror film, you know, horror film seasons on uh, the BBC as well. And, you know, people, if you go back to school or whatever, everyone would be talking about these films, and it was just part of that whole excitement you have when you're learning about a new world, you know? And uh, to me, this film was really part of that. I, I love I love the characters. I mean, this, this is, a, a like you said, it's an absurd um, sort of high-concept idea of, of taking revenge on your critics. But it's sort of, it, it's obviously, it, it cements a view of the critic, which you see sort of over that, like, sort of going back as far as even 1962's Tale of Terror, you know, Christopher Lee as the snotty-nosed critic who you know, makes or breaks careers. And while obviously yeah, Theatre yeah. of Blood is funny in a very dark way, there is a nod to the fact that critics are somehow powerful, which obviously in 2019, this this idea wouldn't work, would it? <laughs> yeah, that, which is interesting. Yeah, you yeah, be after, uh, everyone's a critic on the internet, you know, and there's this idea, yeah, that critics... Yeah, and also the critics are wealthy. Like one of them, mm. I think it's the first one who gets killed, has an apartment overlooking, you know, the River Thames. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I guess technically that was probably fairly cheap then. But you know, there was just you know this wonderful yeah arrogance of the critics, and also uh, like he gets the tramp tramps are helping him, the homeless people are helping him, and it's just like such a you know strange view of a kind of forgotten London, you know. Oh no! I mean, I think, uh, I think the story goes to places for what for what is like you know memorably you know Vincent Price's afro and stuff. But the whole all the sequences with the tramps and that idea of this invisible London was was quite yeah. the money for the time. I mean, it wasn't trying to make that point too strenuously. But when you watch it now with twenty first century eyes, I mean, it was wonderful 
when was it? But probably three or four years ago. I mean, proving your point about how these films are sort of dismissed as low art, and then come the 21st century, somebody's issuing a 2K mastered Blu-ray of Theatre of Blood because it's now considered to be one of the canon, as it were. Yeah, well, it totally is part of the canon. I mean, it totally is. Like, you know, I think I think it's got a real, it's got an, its own its own unique energy and its own uh, aesthetics. Again, it's, it's in the tradition of British horror, like Hammer. No, it is. But it also it looks it looks totally different. It's got its own its own thing happening, and that whole hidden London is part of it. The whole. Yeah, the champs and so on. Also, I also want to say there's that great line in there where there's some Shakespeare play where no one dies. So he's arrogant enough to rewrite it. It's just <laughs> great. This idea that you know the power the the, the uh, theatre director will have. He's he's so evil he'll even re- rewrite Shakespeare. You know. <laughs> right. Well, look, staying staying in 1973, we're going to jump to the uh, to the well-renowned um, British great British horror film of. The Wicker Man. So you want to start by, you know, how you first came to Wicker Man? So, well, I, again, I think it was probably on TV as a mm. kid. I mean, it, this is a horror film. This is probably one of the horror films I've seen more than most uh, horror films. I mean, I saw this on TV as a kid. Mm. Uh, I, I saw it at the National Film Theatre in London with Christopher Lee. Yeah. Uh, I saw it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it many, many times. That's the film I've got on. Uh, I think I've got a three DVD at one point that came with The Guardian, if memory set. Or The Observer on Sunday. What is it about Wicker Man that keeps yeah. you coming back for more? Oh, I think, I think firstly, it's it's the structure of the film. Like the, the way the film actually flows is just brilliant. It's it's really well-crafted. Uh, the plot is really good. The, uh, the whole going to the, you know, the island and then uh, everything unfolding and way up to the kind of the, you know, the end scene, it's just, you know, where the policeman has led himself to the, you know, to the place of uh, ritual slaughter, you know. Mm. It's it's great. The whole So the whole structure is great. Uh, the cinematography is great. The design's great. You know, the, uh, you know, with the Wicker Man and the sun rising in the background or whatever, you know, setting in the background. You know, you know, you know, that was, a, you know, that was, you know, that sun through the burning Wicker Man was an accident. Yeah, I remember that from one of the books on the film, actually. Yeah, because they shot the film in like in like winter, didn't they? Like January, February. So the idea of a clear sky to get a setting sun wouldn't have been something you'd hope to get. But obviously, they got it. And Robin Hardy was saying at a Q and A, you know, that it was like, right, get the shot, get the shot, get the shot. And then it was like they got it, and it was, you know, it literally wasn't. Yeah, it's and it's, it's perfect, iconic, and it's iconic now, isn't it? Yeah, and also, of course, you know, it has. It has one, yeah, probably the most interesting film score, yeah, <laughs> film score that's uh, songs that I can think of. I mean, yeah, and just I remember when the first CD CD came out, the song you're just going to buy it, and just every one of those songs is like it's got that whole perf- perfect kind of they're all traditional songs that must have been sung, and of course they're not. It was all all constructed for the film. Uh, you know, by Paul Giovanni. And I just think that's amazing that, you know, this guy just wrote these songs and now you hear them independently and it sounds like it's part of this tradition. And it's really interesting. So that that whole 
power of the film. And also, of course, the score, you know, I think you can argue that it influenced various bands subsequently as well, mm. uh, which I think is really interesting. Uh, so I think, yeah, I mean, The Wicker Man just has a, a real rare kind of uh, position in culture where it kind of slides in between horror films, uh, neglected British films that were rediscovered, and then this soundtrack that made things, you know, uh, made people reconsider folk music and so on. Uh, which I think is amazing. And it also has, you know, one of my favorite uh, scenes, which is called the naked woman banging on the wall, you know, singing, you know, please come, which is just, all that stuff is just great. You know, you, you watch that and every time you watch it, you're just like, this is this is just, you know, people made this. And you also have this link to the British avant-garde again, because I think it's Lindsay Kemp, isn't it? It's the barman. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like the devils with Derek Jarman uh, doing the art design, so this is kind of this again this avant-garde kind of influence going in there, uh, and of course Christopher Lee is just yeah, it's re- he's really good in it. He has a real gravitas in it, uh, but he's also you know there's that sense that he's carrying this whole community and what he's you know what he's doing, trying to save this whole community in their crops. And I don't I don't know what the reading of the film is that's popular at the moment, but. I, I, I always think that he, yeah, he succeeds. <laughs> well, the, 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 re- the best reading I've heard of the film is the opposite one, which is when, when the film came out, it played brilliantly in the southern states of America because they identified with Edward Woodward as the martyr who never lost his faith, even when he's being burned alive. Of course, yeah. Which, is, which yeah, but I, I always... flipped my idea of the film. I always saw this film from a kind of, I guess you could call it arrogant non-believer stance, if that's if that's a position, um, as being, yeah, look, there, you God didn't save you, did it? But to a believer, and you know the the idea of Job and everything, he never lost his faith, which is more important than being saved by God. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. So I think I think bringing up Job is a really interesting example as well. That idea of being tested by God, and yeah. the idea of yeah, you know, Job is tested by the devil, right? And so obviously, you know, in the Wicker Man, he's being tested. So that's, I mean, that's definitely a reading, but yeah, it's a film that's got so much in it. Without a shadow of a doubt. Well, look, moving swiftly on and jumping into the 21st century and a very different film altogether than, than I think, than the three previous combined, but still no doubt a British horror film, is uh, Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. Yeah, but before we jump to that, I have to say that I didn't realise we were jumping from decade to decade like that. I, I, it's like it's interesting that my thought process and you know looking at films because I watch a lot of films. Yeah. Uh, and there's so many horror films in between that I love that you yeah. know like Hellraiser or you know things like that. Even stuff like Rawhead Rex, which is you know such a great you know entertaining British monster film. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's yeah, it's just a pure coincidence we jumped from the seventies to the two thousand. No, no, this is this is what happens you know, all the I, time. People don't because I I usually spring the dates on people and they haven't thought about it. They've just gone right. What are five great British horror films that I enjoy? And they come up with a list without looking at the dates. And I, and some yeah. people have ne- never leave the seventies. Some people never get to off eight. The eighties is the one that people seem to jump most easy. It's like it is. Yeah, well, you, you, you've think... done you've done something that's quite common. Is that there's a there's definitely seventies horror to, to identify, and then there's a thrill of what's the new. But there's this, yeah. There's like a lull. There's great older ones as well. There's mm. great older ones like the Earth Dies Screaming and Quatermass in the Pit and stuff like that. But yeah, in terms of the eighties, I think it's you know, 
yeah, those uh, Clive Barker adaptations, you know, Raw Headbacks and uh, Hellraiser are the two that come to mind. It's interesting. Anyway, yeah, sorry, Jonathan Glazer's no, 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 uh, no, no, Under no, the Skin. Yeah, go on. What, 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 I'm, I'm guessing you got to the cinema to see this one. <laughs> so, yeah, well, yeah, I, I actually programmed this one. Uh, mm. No, I, I, I love this film. Uh, I mean, I, I, everything about it, I think, is just great. And like, like Wicker Man, it has, it's a film that's got a great score. Uh, it's uh, it's Mikachu, I think, who did the score, and it's this great kind of sense of sound rather than music, which I really like. The sound design is just, you know very evocative. Uh, I love all the opening scene, you know, the white room with the uh, the alien woman is taking the clothes off a woman who's presumably she's yeah gonna take her clothes and go out into the world. And this woman, you know, you think she's dead. She's laying there. But then you see a single tear roll out of her eye. Uh, and this is that whole implication that uh, actually she's just alive, but literally unable to move. And just, I just thought that was really nice. So, because I was something, is this a horror film or not? You know, is it a science fiction film? But just that idea of being powerless. And it's something that comes back again and again with the the alien woman preying on these people and that, you know, they wake up and they find themselves floating in that it's kind of suspended in this black liquid. Uh, and when they, you know, one person's been thrown in, he sees another person in there and he reaches out to touch him. Uh, and it's like, uh, this great tender moment of these two naked men under this black fluid who I guess presumably know they're dying. Uh, and there's this shot of their hands touching, which of course, you know, because, like, you know, the Sistine Chapel or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then one of the men just kind of explodes into nothing and is leaving the other one. And presumably he's going to be floating there till the next one comes in. Uh, so you've got this kind of real kind of undertow of this alien who's doing something with these men. But then you've got this very erotic kind of subtext where the alien is, like, seducing these men and taking them back into this black void. Uh, and the men are just, like, so seduced by her you know, they're stripping off and they're following her and that she's walking along like naked on the surface of this black liquid and these men are just naked slowly sinking into it. It's mm. this stunning design and the, the whole kind of surreal subtext for that uh, art design is just something that I found really, really powerful. And also a lot of the shots, you know, of uh, the alien woman driving uh, the white van through the you know, Scottish Highlands and so on. Uh, just beautifully staged shots, you know, and uh, the, the way the way the whole thing slowly unfolds, and the first time you watch it, I think we have a tendency because we all think that cinema should be fast, and there's a tendency to think it's slow. But you watch it, and I've watched it a few times, and it's actually it's the pacing is just so good, uh, and this kind of combination of this kind of really meticulously paced narrative, uh, it's incredible camera work, it's great soundtrack, and then this kind of horror slash science fiction slash erotic kind of narrative. I just think I just think it's you know, to me it's one of the best films to read. No, I, I couldn't I couldn't uh, agree more. And I think I think it's an example maybe of going back to what you were saying before about that Netflix series you'd seen where I, even though some might see the film as slow, I think it what it does beautifully is it drops you into a, something that you cannot comprehend but you have to but you but you're kind of you're uh, you're compelled yeah, to you, follow <laughs> because you've got no. Yeah, choice. you have you have you have to go go with the film. It, yeah. it demands you watch it. Uh, so yeah, yeah. So the opening shot is an eye, and she's you know a voice, uh, and then she's taking this other woman's clothes, and there's a, a motorcyclist following her, and 
you know, there's this great kind of mystery to the film, mm. uh, which is something that I think is really important. I think that too much horror films and too much explaining goes on, which I think is really unnecessary. I think the more you explain things, the less interesting they are. Uh, the more you're just dropped into it, the more vertiginous the drop, the more exciting the work, you know? Because it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, in fact, I've, only, I've not seen it since it came out of the cinema, but I remember, remember rightly, it it doesn't sort of uh, kowtow to traditional roles of protagonist, antagonist, does it? Because you're kind of, who's the hero no, in the film? No, it's, I mean, there's no such hero in the film. No, it, no, there's no real hero in the film. There's, there's just this woman driving. Yeah. It's fan. I think, I think there's something about that that really just adds to it. it really creates this, you know, atmosphere. Uh, and in a way, I mean, I guess that goes back to being a kid, you know, my early teens, and going to watch films like a Razorhead. And that sense that you don't really know what's happening, but you, you know, the imagery, the sound design, the performances, all like enough just to seduce you. And then you watch it again and again. Yeah, you watch it again and again, and it's just. Incredible! It's a really, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's a great film. I'm a big fan of it. Now, from um, from from one sort of tale, which is not which is sort sort of unprecise and lets your mind wander, to a sort of I guess a film from 2015, whose whose big idea, if you wrote it down, you go, you'll you'll not pull that off. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to have Steve Oram on on the podcast to discuss sort of you know developing that film uh, I mean I'm, I'm talking about R and in fact that's part, part of the original conversation when I spoke to him I said I said is it R is it R I said how do you pronounce eight A's and a H exclamation mark and uh, I think even that even the title's open to interpretation so do you want to talk about what, what what's what's so interesting for you about Steve Oram's R I mean I think one of the things is that the first thing that got me to watch this film uh, was the persona of Steve Orr. Like, uh, I find, I mean, I was a big, big fan of sightseers. Mm -hmm. So I was aware of who he was. Uh, and it's like, I, I think this, this kind of British, I don't know what it's called, British New Wave of filmmakers is really fascinating. And, you know, he's part of that. Uh, so I saw this film, the poster as well, which is, you know, the monkey unzipping a human costume uh, which you know really appealed to me but then you're watching it in the opening scene with the, the two guys in the woods and uh, they, you know you're not really sure what's going on uh, if memory serves they're, you know, they're both kissing onto a photograph yep. and then one wipes the other one's cock and you're just like this, what am I watching this is great you know it's like this is nothing nothing that you normally see in a film and then of course you know, when they're communicating and you realise they're going to communicate as animals, uh, that was it. I was just hooked. And, you know, the idea is it's sort of like a, almost like a, a regular British, you know, uh, narrative, kitchen sink narrative or something. Only, only they happen to be like, you know, behaving like, you know, gorillas. <laughs> and, it's, and I just thought it was fascinating, you know. Uh, and the performances again, the fact that people did this, uh, acted this, like this, and that you totally went with it. You know, I think it's one of those films, if you weren't willing to go with it, you would be lost. But you just go with it that these people are grunting and they're watching TV and eating and arguing and stuff, but they're all doing it as primates, 
you know, I just thought that was fascinating. And there was something about that. And again, it appeals to that sense of the visceral we talked about. Mm. It appeals to that sense of the surreal uh, that I like, you know, very much like. Uh, and that sense of the dreamlike. Uh, and that sense of like, I guess right back to my interest in underground film, that sense of like, you know, film is a kind of critical voice about about the world, you know, about about something. And this is a film which, you know, is critical in the sense that it's about, you know, civilization is just, uh, you know, a thin veneer, you know, and it's having fun saying that. Uh, and obviously, after that, you know, you see that Steve Warren's gone off and acted in films like, you know, Dark Dark Song, which I realise is Irish, not British, but you know, I think I feel he's got that, you know, a, a weight a weight in his work there, and I think R is like, you know, it's it's a fascinating voice. No, I think I mean, I, I, it's sort of um, of all the films we've talked about, it's probably it's probably the one that. If you think, I mean, in the small narrative that is me talking to you now and how that happens, um, me reading Death Tripping, I can, you know, R is probably the closest in terms of the the will the will of doing what you want and however you want. Yeah, exists. Yeah, more than exactly. It's uh, there's, yeah. there's there's a kind of willfulness to what he's doing and and. And and it's unforgiving because and what I've found and like you say I think going with it going with the flow is important to the success of the film and if you're willing to accept it you completely and utterly understand what is essentially a kitchen sink drama about family rivalries except nobody actually enunciates a single word but they grunt a lot yeah which I which I think I think that's great I think it's it's it shows you the power of imagination mm. uh, it shows you the power of dreams, the power of, you know, symbols, uh, you know, because you can just watch that film and you know what's happening. And it, and it also shows you the power of how much we watch watch TV and, you know, watch these, you know, so, you know soaps or whatever, you know, that we understand family rivalries and stuff, but how much we watch nature programs. So when we see people grunting like apes, we kind of guess what's going on, mm. you know. Uh, I, I think it really... It really worked. I mean, I just, it's one of those films you watch it and you're like, actually, this is, you know, this is someone who's going there in a new space where people haven't gone before. I mean, I think that that's true of all the films I've mentioned to greater or lesser degree. Mm. You know, but I think, ah, really went, really, uh, it's just somewhere, something totally uncharted waters, you know, uh, which I, which I love. Uh, and it is that, yeah, yeah it's that surreal aspect of stuff that I think is really. Really? That the opening scene that you mentioned before, um, I remember when I uh, was looking to talk to Steve about making the film, is that to me what struck me about that was it's it's the cam the the, the, the throughout the whole film the camera is very much a, our eyes watching what's going on. It's not being thrown around. The edit isn't quick and snappy. It's very much a window yeah. into a world, and 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 then obviously that's aping to excuse the pun. Um, sort of wildlife videos so we're expecting because the camera's waiting for things to enter the frame <laughs> and then things do and it's then and then like you say what you describe happens the two men having a, having a pee on something and then touching each other while grunting and we're like what are we doing here but from a cinematic point of view it's very kind of um, formalist you know we the frame doesn't change it's only what comes into the frame that changes um which is 
when somebody yeah. doesn't move the camp perspective or the angle, you kind of it's, there's an uncomfortableness to that because you have to watch. There's nowhere else to look, is there? And the, the, the editor and the director are conspiring to make you dwell on something rather than making it comfortable. So you go, yeah, look at it from here, look at it from there, look at it from over there. I think I think that with R and also with Under the Skin, you know, we live in a, a world where media images are, you know, they're very, they're very dominant cinema, very dominant cinema of, uh, of Hollywood cinematic language. Yeah. And R and Under the Skin both subvert that based on what we know. Both, you know, play with our expectations. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's the strength of those films. And I think that that's, that's something that, like, you know, to me, it's the thing that first seduced me about the cinema. It's cinema films that made me, you know, think in a different way, look in a different way, hear in a different way. And I think those films do it. I and mean, I think all five of these films do. I was going to say, let's, let's yeah, do a quick run. We've degrees. done all five now. Let's uh, we'll just do a quick rundown. And so we've got, from 1971, we've got The Devils. From 73, we've got Theatre of Blood and The Wicker Man. And then moving to 2011, we've got Under the Skin. And 2015, we've got Ah. Um, do you think in you're saying there that cinema was this thing that helped you sort of uh, discover and see the world but do you think there's any underlying theme across these five that you've chosen that that, that weaves them all together uh, that's a good question I think they all have that kind of surreal aspect mm. uh, that aspect of uh, something under the everyday which obviously horror does in general but I don't. I think the, the horror under the everyday, in some way, the way it's represented, strikes me as surreal in these films. You know, the, the songs in The Wicker Man, uh, the art design in Devils, uh, and so on. I think that, that there's that kind of yeah surrealist kind of aspect to it. Uh, there's also, I guess, in some way, they also, to me, all maybe push genre in a different way or. They push whatever the genre was at that time in a slightly different direction, you know. Oh no, I think you've uh, picked, I think you've picked five. I mean, Theatre of Blood aside, and that's even that's a dark comedy. You, you've picked five films really that the sort of well, I don't know is genre 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 um, what do you call it um, genre defying. I mean, w- Wicker Man wasn't a horror film till wasn't easily classed as a horror film until years after the after it existed. You know, it went out as a double bill, didn't it, with Don't Look Now. I mean, both films are considered yeah. horror films, but I don't think when they were released they were classed as horror films. Um, yeah, no, I think I think all these films... Yeah, no, you're right. All these films kind of push genre in a different way. Mm. Uh, or defy genre, or retrospectively positioned in genre. Uh, I guess also... I mean, they're all films where I think that sound is really important. Sound design is really important. Maybe not so much in Theatre of Blood, but there's this sense of sound in them, which I, I think is kind of interesting. I don't know if that's a conscious decision on my part or not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to, you know, from the score of Wicker Man, the score of or sound design of Under the Skin, the emphasis on non, non-verbal communication in, in uh, Steve Orham's film, uh... So I think sound and art design plays a big, big part of all these films. I mean, obviously, sound and art design is in all films, but in some way, these ones stand out for me. So mm. that uh, I, I think, they, I think there's also, there's also, 
I just I've only just realised this. I Go think on. that they all have kind of they all have there's kind of literary or theatrical aspects of it. Like Under the Skin's a novel. Uh, the Devils was a novel. Uh, so I don't know if that's that's an aspect of it as well. There's some kind of literary, I don't know, literary aspect in some way. Had you read Under the Skin before you watched it? I have to say I hadn't. It was like, yeah. Have you, have I, you, read, it, have you read it since? I actually, I actually haven't. It's one of those books that's on the list, you know. Well, what's interesting, it's one, uh, of, I mean, it's one of those rare cases where I have. Because it's not, it's not often I can claim this, but I'd, I'd read it, and 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 it was the last film, on, it was the last book on earth that I'd imagine you'd make into a film, and the disconnect between the book and the film is so huge, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be hard pressed, I think, in, in in many senses, reading the book and going, I don't remember that in the film, I don't remember that, you know, it really is that different. The way the book is, it's much more of an industrial. Aliens coming to take, you know, body snatching, taking us away, and we're blissfully unaware that this is going on. Yeah, I think what makes, yeah, the idea of an unfilmable novel, I, I always find that something's unfilmable, how can you film it? And maybe, you know, that's also the strength to these things is uh, trying, trying, using this kind of material and just using it as a launching pad for ideas, you know. Oh yeah, no. I think, uh, I think and, if you know what something's about, I think it lends itself to you can lend it to film. But if you if you think you're trying to do a facsimile of a book, that's not what films for. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're different mediums. Exactly, yeah. they're different mediums. Uh, but I, I, they all feel they all feel kind of weighty to me in mm. some way, except for Theatre of Blood, which is just just fun. Well, <laughs> but even but even you say like I say like we said earlier though I think. Even though that, that there's that veneer of frivolity to Theatre of Blood, there's a there's a dark heart in there as well. In in terms of some of the some of the parts of the narrative that's in there, obviously, most of the revenge sequences are just are just hilarious and and macabre. But I think some of the hidden London that we see is is a bit sort of um, is saying something more serious than maybe the whole film would have you believe it's saying. Um, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe that's the other thing that links up these five films. They've all got that hidden aspect, you know, the what's going on in white vans, what's going on in the streets of London, what's going on in this island off the coast of Scotland, what's secretly going on, you know, around the church. Yeah, all of these things, there's kind of hidden aspects to all of these things kind of explodes out. Right? Totally, totally. Well, look, well, maybe that's part of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw this podcast to a close, even though we could talk about it for ages. Um, do you want to give us a... Um, oh, thank you very much for starters, for coming on and giving us your time to talk about five great short films. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thanks for having me. And uh, one last thing before you go, do you want to just remind us of the of your, your latest book that people can get? And, and, and I'll, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to it. Yeah, so Flesh and Excess on Underground Film uh, and Against Control, my last two books. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.